0: Imagine a culture in which not knowing is valued so highly that I'm exceedingly ignorant is considered a boast. That is not where you and I live. <laughs> but Frank Ostaszewski, in his book, The Five Invitations, suggests the value of traveling to that country, even dwelling there. Like Le Guin's Handara, he strives to be more comfortable with a state of not knowing and urges us to do the same. The Hondara used the word (laughs) ignorant, positively, whereas Ostaseski elsewhere in his chapter draws a distinction between ignorance, which he sees as pejorative, and don't know mind, which is positive. But despite the difference in terminology, I think they're talking about the same frame of mind. One of openness, curiosity, Suspension of judgment, and as Ostaseski writes, and I'll get to in a little while, um, intimacy. We value knowledge so much. We value expertise. Maybe even more so here in Silicon Valley where many of us are part of the information economy. The knowledge sector. It is our business to know and Whether we do that professionally or not, it tends to seep in and dominate other aspects of our lives. How comfortable are we saying, I don't know? How much time do we spend doing things we do badly? Because we don't understand them very well yet. How long do we stick with a book or movie that is confusing us or with music and art that seem not to follow the rules that we're accustomed to. How patient are we with people who speak in ways that are confusing to us, whose social rules or vocabulary are unfamiliar and disorienting? How well do we deal with an unpredictable and unknown future? We value knowledge because knowledge is valuable. It really is. And yet there is such a thing as overvaluing knowledge. If we spend too much time in the land of knowledge, it can feed an illusion that we do know everything that's most important, or that we should. And I don't think either one of those things is true. In fact, about the things that are most important to us, we often know very little. And the cultural expectation that we should denies us access to these very rich experiences. I'm thinking of stuff like, you know, any of these things when they're new for us, being in love, being a parent, entering a new field of work. In fact, any moment when in life, we're going to the next level, we're entering the unfamiliar. You know, we can stay at the level we're at right now, doing what we know, or we can adventure on if we overvalue knowing, we'll tend to stay where we know what we're doing and miss out on a lot of adventures. The writer and film director, Michael Crichton, has an analogy for this phenomenon when he talks about the values and limitations of science. The um, story here is told by a writer named Derek Lynn. He says, Crichton likens science to a tailor and life to a man named George. The tailor's job, science, is to take measurements and make clothes. He is extremely good at what he does. He can take just a few few measurements of George, that's life, with a great degree of accuracy. And from these measurements, calculate other dimensions with confidence. From these measurements and calculations, he is able to create a suit and make sure it fits perfectly. In fact, he is so proficient at this, that once he has George's measurements on file, from that point on, he can make other suits of whatever style George may want, and they too will fit George perfectly. The above is synonymous with all, with all the great achievements of science, which is all about the study of physical phenomena, measurements, and the creation of technologies that leverage such knowledge, suits. Now, we would like to get to know George better, so we ask the tailor to describe him. The tailor looks at his notes and answers with complete certainty, George is a 44 medium. (laughs) Is that all you can tell us? We find the tailor's answer rather unsatisfactory. Of course not. The tailor may be irritated that we assume he knows so little. George's neck size is 17. And the best slacks for him are 36 to 38. That's great, but what kind of a person is he? What are his likes and dislikes? What are his dreams and aspirations? What are his hopes and fears? He, look, you're asking the wrong guy, pal. Bingo, says Derek Lynn. We're asking the wrong guy. Now, this analogy applies not only to science, but to all forms of knowledge. Each has a particular approach. It has a scope of usefulness, and it has limits. So does knowledge itself, because reality is beyond anything we can understand. Einstein said, one thing I have learned in a long life, that all our science measured against reality is primitive and childlike. Ostaseski says, from a very different perspective, having explored through meditation and service rather than through mathematics and physics, reality cannot be mapped. It is beyond description or any one view. It is not a single static truth, but rather an endless unfolding mystery. It is alive, dynamic. (coughs) Now, of course, mapping reality is exactly what we do with all our disciplines they all fall short, they all show us just a piece, and all of them put together don't show us all that we could potentially discover about reality. Now I'm thinking here about children and how they are constantly in a state of not knowing, and thus discovering. Maybe we're born with this tolerance because otherwise we would die of frustration. Babies live in a state of near constant bewilderment. John Holt, the educator, tells a story of a girl who saw how the word once was spelled and burst into tears. (laughs) The world is constantly defying their expectations. And yet I was just talking to my daughter, the child I know best, um, some days ago, and she was talking about You know, I know things now that I didn't know. I was completely, I didn't know anything about this. I can't remember exactly what she was talking about. I didn't know anything about this. And then I got older and I thought I knew something about it. And now I know that I didn't really know anything about it. It's just so exciting. She was excited. (laughs) You know, she wasn't saying, God, I was such an idiot. Oh, I don't even want to look at that anymore. It's so embarrassing. She was excited. What's next? Children press on. They're curious and eager to learn more, and so they keep close to the boundaries of their knowledge, the outer boundaries of what they already know. They're always staring into their ignorance, into their not knowing. Now, why do adults lose this? Because we do so much. I mean, most of us have a field or two where we keep that curiosity alive. Certainly the folks I'm talking to here. You are a wildly curious bunch of people. You're learning, you're exploring, and yet don't we mostly kind of specialize? There's one area, a couple of, couple of areas where we really want to learn more, more, more. And then a lot of places we really kind of stay in the same track. I don't think we need to lose this attitude toward not knowing that children have just because we know a lot more stuff. In fact, the wisest know that the more we learn, the more the vast realms of what we don't know open up before us. As the rabbi and theologian Leo Beck said, every answer given arouses new questions. The progress of science is matched by an increase in the hidden and mysterious. Well, he's a theologian, they love the hidden and mysterious, but (laughs) scientists say this too. Like the astronomer Maria Mitchell, for example, she said, scientific investigations pushed on and on will bring us deeper revelations of the holy unknown. After all, that excitement about the unknown is what draws many people to science in the first place. Carl Sagan, another astronomer, said, modern science has been a voyage into the unknown with a lesson in humility waiting at every stop. Scientists and explorers and learners of all kinds frequently find that the answer to one question opens the door onto many other questions they had not even perceived. That's one of the things that's exciting about it. Knowing leads to the unknown, the unknown to knowing, and on and on in an exploration that as far as we can tell, will never end. And yet so often we do lose our childhood curiosity. We lose that energy. We lose that boldness. We settle into the tracks where we are experts. We give into the fear that made that little girl start to cry when she learned something that seemed to reverse all her expectations. We begin to expect the world to make sense, which is strange. You would think the longer we spend in the world, the less we think that. Ostoszewski once again finds that in his work in hospice, specifically he was in the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, the situation of being in the presence of people who are close to death helps us to practice the experience of not knowing. This situation is one in which not knowing is palpable. As Shakespeare said, death is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Even those who have had near-death experiences or have actually been declared dead by doctors, they can't come back and tell us what it's really like on the other side because as far as they or anyone knows, they haven't quite crossed that barrier yet. Like being born, dying is something we do only once and without a rehearsal. And so is dementia. Talking to someone whose condition suspends most of the rules of conversation has its own challenges, as he tells in that story about Leroy. Logic and coherence are gone or have taken forms we don't recognize. And that throws us into a place of not knowing. And it's difficult. That's a learning opportunity. So, being able to sit patiently, if not comfortably, in a space of not knowing, is essential to learning, to growth, to development, to discovery, all of which are foundations for knowing. Really, knowing and not knowing, rather than being opposed, they're partners. They coexist in balance like yang and yin. Maintaining this balance, holding both what we know and what we don't know, is also a key to intimacy. Intimacy, closeness to others. In in, in a way, it's all about knowledge. The people we're intimate with are the ones we know the best and who know us the best. We're comfortable with each other. We are, we are tuned into each other's wishes, each other's ways. But as Ostaseski's story of Leroy reveals, intimacy also depends on being able to sit with not knowing. These reflections come at a very opportune time for me because I have been visiting people for a hospice by the bay. Um, they, uh, Some patients ask for companionship, and so volunteers go to spend time with them, and that's what I'm doing. And the patient I'm currently visiting poses a challenge for me because I don't know what to say or ask. He's very quiet. I ask open-ended questions about his career and family, and he responds with brief answers, and then we sit in silence. That's how it went in our first visit. The room was just teeming with don't know. And I don't like that. I don't know what to say. I don't know whether he is comfortable just sitting there in silence or if he's squirming inside the way I am. I don't know why he wants a visitor. I don't know if this is helping at all. All of which makes me nervous about my next visit, which is tomorrow. Truth be told, if I hadn't promised, if I hadn't promised him and the the whole team of caregivers at the hospice, I wouldn't go. I'd put it off, probably. And then he wouldn't have a visitor, and he wants one. All of that because it's just hard for me to sit in the don't know. And I think all of that addresses Ostostesky's point about intimacy. Being in don't know mind allows us to be close to each other. If I can be comfortable with that, then I can just be there, which is what he's asked for. I guess it makes sense that that's a part of intimacy because one of the greatest mysteries that we will never penetrate is what another person is feeling thinking, wanting, even our best friend, even our spouse, even the people we have known all our lives, most of what's going on inside them at any given moment, we don't know what it is. So can we just be in that not knowing? People will say sometimes, um, if you talk about hospice work, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't visit someone who is dying, they say. I wouldn't know what to say. But reading this wisdom from Ostasewski, I realized that what will make it possible for me to go into that room tomorrow is not some special knowledge. It's not any expertise that I have acquired. If I can do it, it will be only because I have acquired some tolerance of not knowing. So when I go in, maybe I will learn something, maybe this not knowing will lead to more knowing, or maybe it will lead somewhere else. When knowing fails us, when we just come up against our own ignorance, our own not knowing, what we are left with is witnessing. Simply being with someone where they are, being with whatever they are experiencing, being with ourselves and our own anxieties about the future, our own uncertainty, just witnessing here's where we are. So can we value that? You know, the reason that, um, that we visit the people who are dying, the reason I'm visiting this man is this time of his life is sacred. The last weeks, the last days of one person's adventure on earth. It deserves to be witnessed, to be given the dignity of attention. So often that's all we're asking from each other. Just bear witness to where I am who I am in this moment and if we can set aside our intense discomfort with not knowing what else to do but bear witness and we receive this amazing gift we are able to be in that sacred and beautiful place that cathedral of human life a tolerance for not knowing is the key that opens the door to an intimate and all too rare experience. All of us gathered here, we Unitarian Universalists and fellow travelers, people on a quest for truth and meaning, people who care about knowledge, who follow our curiosity, I believe that as those kind of people, we are not only in search of knowledge, Like the fictional Hondara and the real-life Taoists and Buddhists like Frank Ostaseski, we are called to develop that ability to not know. The song we sang a little while ago, Voice Still and Small, speaks of that voice deep within all, voice that speaks to us, but it is interesting that it doesn't promise that in times of trouble, through all the ups and downs of our lives, that voice brings knowledge. It sings instead of singing. What we hear is singing. Perhaps the deeper wisdom that we find when we sit in the space of not knowing will sing to us and even in the agonies of uncertainty and fear we will feel we will feel our spirits fill with music so may it be